morning. Oh, oh, good morning. Wait, it's actually afternoon. It is afternoon. And guess what? We're both in the same room oh for the God, first the time ever. Ah! Yeah, because our one on Saturday, I kicked you out and made you go downstairs. That's right. We were in the same house, but we weren't in the same, like, now we figured out how to do this where we can be in the same room. And that, look, it's a different experience being in the same it room is. together. It is. I feel like Jeff Lewis. <laughs> Who is that? He's on Bravo. He has a serious XM um, oh, okay. radio podcast. Yeah, so, there's not enough time in the day for me to get up to date with all the no, Bravo. It's fine. He was from a show on Bravo called Flipping Out. That's no longer in syndication. I will tell you, Laura, your view oh, is just, we're looking out at the beautiful, beautiful water. It's this nothing is, to shake a stick at. You no, know? it's not. It's not. But how have you been? Good. You know, just been waiting for you to get here. You know, that's all I do. <laughs> here we are. I just sit around and wait for you to get here. But no, I uh, just kind of had this realization, not that I didn't realize it, but I've been pushing it back in my head that the oxygen ball is upon us again on Friday. I so just can't believe it's been a year. Five days. Yeah, it's been a year. That's if that truly feels like it was a few weeks ago. I, to be fair, the last one was in June. It's uh, pushed back because of the pandemic. But we are coming up on like our anniversary of our first podcast release. So I know it's so is, crazy to it, me. Time is nuts. So flying. It's flying. And I, you know, kind of goes to our question of the day we'll get to later. But I think overall, it's ah, the nerves are starting to hit me with that. But, you know, I've done this before. I can do it again. Oh, my God. And can I just I forget until I'm here at Charleston. If you haven't, if you're listening, you've never been to Charleston, South Carolina, you need to get on a plane you're and come down out. here. Although don't because traffic is always a, a joke. Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, like if you have a driver, that would be nice. And if you, you know, honestly, you just get to a place you like and then just stay there. There's no real exactly. reason to get on the on the interstate or anything. Absolutely. But it is a lovely place and it's always nicer but when you're here. What so. a cool guy that we got to interview today. Yes, a very deep thinker, which I always like. Extremely deep thinker. Yeah. He has lots of really great outlooks on everything, been through a lot himself and continues to help other people reframe the way they think, which I love that you brought up to him. You know, it's a very just intelligent conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. I actually felt smarter just I, you from know, sitting and listening to him that speak. That would happen. Todd has now gotten a partial PhD by I am, osmosis. I, am, I, I now hold a PhD in fierce, <laughs> in and fierce. so now we are. <laughs> I'm, I'm just being serious. I have to update your bio. <laughs> no, I really did learn a tremendous amount. And I wish, you know, you had said, I think during this, that you, you would love to be one of his students. Just listening to him talk about, basically, he knows the history of why we got to where we are. Oh my God, all the history. And I love it. He's, you know, he's a nerd like me. He likes like knowing when different words, where they came from, what they mean, literally yep. the Latin, yep. the history of everything. So, And he's been through so much and has truly turned it around to help others as the collective. Yeah. Could you give us a little bit of uh, about him? Ed Cohen is an author, counselor, professor, and advocate for collaborative care and holistic healing. At 13, Ed was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, a chronic incurable condition that nearly killed him in his early 20s. His doctors told him that the best he could hope for was periods of remission. Unfortunately, they never mentioned healing as a possibility. 
In his book, On Learning to Heal, as well as his counseling practice, Cohen draws on 50 years of living with Crohn's to consider how Western medicine's turn from an art of healing toward a science of medicine deeply affects both medical practitioners and their patients. He demonstrates that although medicine can now offer many seemingly miraculous therapies, it is not and has never been the only way to enhance healing. Exploring his own path to healing, he argues that learning to heal requires us to desire and value healing as a vital possibility. Cohen has a PhD in modern thought from Stanford and for the last three decades has been an award-winning professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Rutgers University. Ed offers a fresh perspective on how healing and medicine are connected and emphasizes the need for caring collaboration in a society hyper-focused on individualism. So without further ado, we give you Ed Cohen. Well, good afternoon, Ed. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful day here in Brooklyn, New York. Well, Ed, we are so happy to have you on the program. Can you give us a little bit of uh, background about yourself, where you're from, and sort of what your childhood was like? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Just get right into it. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I grew up in a small town in northern Maryland, in a family of diasporic Jews. We were one of three Jewish families, us, the Getzes, and the Bears, that lived in Bel Air, Maryland. Everybody else was mostly Catholic, some born-again Christian. My mother was a communist. My father was a physical chemist. My mother was the head of the anti-war movement in the 1960s. So we were kind of different family Compared to the people around us, we lived near a major army base, Aberdeen Proving Ground, which is where my father worked. And they, so the Department of Defense was the major employer in the area. And my mother was the major anti war activist. And my parents' biggest arguments used to be about whether my mother could put anti war bumper stickers on the station wagon that my father drove onto the base every day. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I was a smart little kid in a weird little place, proto-queer kid in a homophobic time. And when I was around 13, I started getting really sick, probably related to being the proto-queer kid, but you know, you never know. And at that point, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which in case you don't know, is a kind of auto, it's considered to be an autoimmune disease. It's an inflammatory bowel disease. And I had a really acute period where I couldn't digest any food. I became emaciated and I had burning diarrhea all the time. Eventually I was hospitalized and then they finally diagnosed me after I like to say they left no orifice unprobed. I was told that I had Crohn's disease and then they said it was an autoimmune illness. And, you know, I was 13, I was a smart kid, but autoimmunity was not one of my words. So, so they tried to explain it to me. They said, well, it's as if you're allergic to yourself, which that actually didn't really help a lot. That's how they phrased it to you? Oh, yeah. It's really good. It gets better. Then they, <laughs> <laughs> then they said, because I didn't know what that meant. Then they said, well, it's as if part of yourself is rejecting yourself. Okay. I'm like, okay, I'm not oh really gosh. good. And then finally they said, 
you're eating yourself alive. Oh, okay. Okay. no, I got the image. That was good. <laughs> Super uplifting doctors you had. My God. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. And, you know, that is not something you ever want to tell anybody, but you really don't want to tell a 13-year-old proto-queer kid that they're eating themselves alive. That was not, not helpful. But then simultaneously, I was put on massive doses of prednisone. And I don't know if you've ever had the joy of taking prednisone. And prednisone is one of those miracle drugs that they give for everything. You know, if you have poison ivy or if you have a brain tumor, we'll give you prednisone. And God love it. You know, prednisone does an amazing job of what it needs to do, which is basically suppress your immune response. But it has all kinds of crazy side effects. Now you can just Google them. You know, it's not hard to find out what the side effects were. But in 1972, there was no internet, no Googling, no nothing. They didn't tell me anything. And I didn't know that, you know, some of the major side effects were things that were obviously happening. Like I became really obese and I had this big cush white face and I had all kinds of zits and, you know, I got crazy stretch marks. And But the most significant ones are psychological. So prednisone causes anxiety, depression, mood swings, but nobody seemed to think that that was happening because I was an adolescent. They were basically like, he's a teenager. So now I refer to that as my adolescence on steroids. Yeah, it was an adventure. And I was on these very high doses of steroids for 10 years. Like, So now nobody would be on prednisone for 10 years. I mean, they have, there's yeah, alternatives. That's what I was, whether, that's what I was going to ask, though. Is, like, yeah. is, is that what they do to treat it now? No. No, now they have a, a variety of other ways. Uh, it's all still immunosuppression for any kind of autoimmune illness. There are no cures. They don't know why any of them occur. I mean, it, the autoimmunity is a kind of paradoxical problem within medicine. It shouldn't occur you know, in the way that they think about immunity. Immunity is defined, well, classically defined as the science of self, not self-discrimination. So autoimmunity, though, when you're eating yourself alive, autoimmunity is when the self mistakes itself as not self. So it's some kind of weird paradoxical, you know, loop that you kind of are. So all they can do is one, a recent review article of, of autoimmune illnesses used this great phrase that I love, the sledgehammer of immunosuppression. So, so they have different kinds of sledgehammers now, slightly smaller. So they're, they're, called, they're sometimes referred to as biologics. They're monoclonal antibodies. There's a variety of them. They keep coming up with new ones. So nobody would be on prednisone for as long as I was. I mean, I'm glad I was because I'm alive. Right. But unfortunately, they never really worked. So basically, I, I mean, I was incontinent for 10 years, you know, so I had my little baggie with my extra underwear and my wet wipes and, you know, like everything. And you went from being emaciated sort of to to ballooning on this medication. Absolutely. My God. Completely. And, you know, they give prednisone. I'm a singer and they give prednisone. You know, voice doctors will give it to us if we're if our voice is going to get us through a performance. But and they did an episode about this on Smash. <laughs> I kid you not on that show Smash. They did a yeah, whole prednisone episode and about the actress Megan Hilty at the time was was going through a bout of depression and feeling crazy. And it was a side effect from prednisone. So just to hear exactly. your firsthand experience is pretty on point with that. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, and that's just from a short dose. 
if you're on it for a decade, it's something else. Yeah. And so your doctors, when, when you were diagnosed, told you that the best you could really hope for were periods of remission, but never mentioned healing completely as a possibility. Why do you kind of believe this is was misguided information in a way? Well, because I had a radical healing experience that kind of blew my mind. Do tell. So yes. yeah, no, nothing. Healing is not part of medical discourse. Part of the book that I'm here promoting called On Learning to Heal or What Medicine Doesn't Know, tries to figure out why healing, which was medicine's reason for existing from the time that it was invented in the 5th century BCE, basically until the beginning of the 20th century, healing was the central purpose of medicine. And what medicine had tried to do was to support and encourage the natural power of healing. I mean, and if you think about pre-antibiotic medicine, I mean, there weren't a lot of highly effective technologies that they could use. What they could do is to really try to help you change your life. I mean, the main technique of medicine until the beginning of the 20th century is called regimen, or, or what we would now call diet. The In Greek, the word dieteta means mode of life. It doesn't just mean you know, I'm losing weight. It means everything about your life. And so that's what, you know, physicians up until the end of the 19th century, that's pretty much what they could do. I mean, they had some pharmacological, you know, elements, some herbs, some minerals that they could give people, they could bleed them. But basically, they could tell you, eat better, get some rest, go out, you know, into the fresh air, go to the baths and drink some mineral water. But at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, what we now consider to be scientific medicine began to be created. And so medicine gradually shifted from the art of healing to the science of medicine. And when it did that, the notion of healing itself basically disappears. It, it disappears from medical training and it disappears from medical discourse. It's not that doctors you know, or potential doctors aren't drawn to medicine because they're not interested in healing. They are, but it's not something that a scientific approach, which is based on what we call biochemical reductionism, like the idea that everything about you can somehow be explained in terms of your cell, your tissues, your cells, your molecules, maybe your subatomic particles. That biochemical reductionism became the gospel of medicine, starting in the late 19th century with the development of bacteriology and the invention of immunology. But really, at the beginning of the 20th century, all of medical training in, in North America and then eventually throughout the world was reorganized so that prospective doctors basically have to do what they do now. They have to take pre-med, they have to take calculus, chemistry, biochemistry, physics. That was introduced after this man named Flexner did this report for the, the Carnegie Foundation. And then that became like the basis for medical training and medical licensure. So doctors don't think about healing as an outcome. Which is crazy. Yeah, no, it, and it's crazy for them, you know, too. Like, I yeah. I feel bad, you know, I mean, I, like, I don't feel bad for doctors, but, but I do feel bad for doctors. Their training, first of all, if you think about what you have to do to go to medical school, besides all of their intense 
coursework that you have to do, which is basically a weeder system to, you know, get it narrowed down the number of people who actually can go to medical school, which is crazy because we have a deficit of doctors right now in America. So why they keep doing that? I mean, but the experience of medical school, it's like a boot camp. It's like, I mean, someone recently described it to me as it's like entering a cult. You do sleep deprivation, you don't eat properly, like all of the things that doctors would not would tell their patients not to do, they have to do in order to become doctors. It seems yeah. a little weird, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't it's a little bizarre. So, you know, it's not surprising doctors don't know anything about healing. And and as a consequence, you know, I didn't really know anything about healing either because, you know, basically I believed my doctors. And and one of the things that I try to explain to people is that, you know, when you go to a doctor, there's a few things that happen. First of all, when we go to a physician, usually we go desiring that they know something about us that we don't know. So we think of them as the person who's supposed to know. If they don't know what's going on, then we're really in a, you know, we're really fucked up. But that puts a lot of pressure on them as the person who's supposed to know, right? They have to be in the all-knowing position. So it creates this like really weird dynamic between the patient and the doctor just to begin with. And then if you do get, first of all, a diagnosis, and then second of all, a prescription or some kind of treatment, when you get the treatment, you're not only taking the treatment, like I with the prednisone. When I would take the prednisone every morning, and then I would have to take, followed by a chaser of, you know, my Lanta or Maalox, because it burns the lining of your stomach. You're not just taking the drug. It's like a communion. You're taking in the way of thinking that lies behind the medication that you're taking, because some doctor has explained to you, I'm giving you this because blah, blah. And so you both receive a treatment, but you also receive a way of imagining what's going on. A placebo right? in the, a way, the concept of... Well, so that's that's the positive part of it, absolutely. That And that partly explains why placebos work, right? And people don't usually think about that, but the paradox of the way that that pharmaceuticals are tested now is they have to be tested again, you know, it's a double blind, you know, testing against the placebo. And the reason they test against the placebo is not because the placebo doesn't work. It's because the placebo does work, right? And so to be considered an effective medicine, it has to be better than a placebo. But are they interested in why the placebo works? Not very much. There are a few people, there's a guy named Ted Kapchak at Harvard who does placebo studies. There's a few people who do placebo studies. But in general, is that suggests that there is some kind of healing process, right, that might be cultivated. And But of course, it's very hard to sell that. Correct. Right? Like, you don't have a product. It's very hard to sell it. I mean, it's interesting. Now, they're doing actually open-label placebos. They're doing tests with people where they, like, say, I'm giving you a placebo. <laughs> and apparently it works. Oh, I don't, wow. Yeah. You know, And I just heard stories about people give themselves placebos. Someone was telling me a story of, I mean, this may be apocryphal. And this is what they, this is how they refer to all these things. They just say, this is anecdotal evidence. So it's not really data because it's not statistically verifiable, but it's a great story. So someone told me that her cousin had like horrible migraines 
And the way that she would deal with it is when she started getting a migraine, she would take an imaginary jar. She would just go, like, take a jar and then screw off the imaginary jar and take an imaginary pill and give herself the imaginary pill and she would feel better. No, I'm not here to say yes or no, but I spending a long time, but I had a similar, more radical experience than that. This is how I, you know, to the question of like, how did I figure out about healing was when I was 23. That's what I want to get into this for right now. You were, you almost died in your twenties from bleeding out and from a, I think it's peritoneal infection as a result of your Crohn's disease, which resulted in an emergency surgery. Now your doctor's said afterwards that you were basically the sickest person that they had ever operated on that had survived. How did you manage to sort of beat the odds in that case? And does it sort of change the way you see healing? Oh, well, that was like the first inclination that I had that something might be going on that was more than medicine knew. So yeah, I had a massive bleed out. I had a small bowel perforation that then caused all of these infections. And I had a giant abscess on a blood vessel on my small bowel and and it burst. That whole part was just, I mean, the the whole experience was crazy because I was in the hospital. It was 1982 when AIDS was just emerging. And I happened to be in the hospital when the CDC published its first report about the gay man in Los Angeles were getting these infectious diseases that they didn't know. And they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I was at Stanford University Hospital, which is a big teaching hospital. And so I'm lying in my bed one day and the infectious diseases team comes into my room, you know, because there's always a team in a teaching hospital. And they're like, hey, we just read this report about these gay men that are getting this infectious, these infectious diseases. And we think it might be sexually transmitted. And we're wondering if you might have it. And I'm like, okay, I have been incontinent and on prednisone for 10 years. I really have not been having sex. You don't feel very sexy when you're incontinent (laughs) and on steroids. You know, it's not a thing. So they're like, do you think you might have this? And I said, not unless you believe in immaculate infection. And then we all laugh. The weird irony, or I don't know, whatever, but my highest risk of getting HIV at that time was from the massive blood transfusions that I was getting because it was long before, they didn't even know what HIV was then. So, you know, I was getting, so it's like this weird thing. But when I was bleeding out and they was they were giving me massive blood transfusions, so I had one of those out-of-body near-death things where I was kind of floating up in the air and kind of, I knew something was going on because everybody in the room was freaking out. And there was like all these people trying to like, you know, stabilize my blood pressure enough to get me to emergency surgery. But I was just kind of really calm and just like up above. And it occurred to me, I'm like, I'm not a calm person. Why am I feeling so calm? (laughs) You know? So, and the next thing I know is like, they're, you know, rushing me to the, the ER and, and I'm flying down the hall, watching myself. I was like, oh, my God. But then the next thing I know, I woke up in the, the ICU, and I had a small bowel resection. And also parts of my liver removed. And, and I was septic. I mean, you know, I was highly, I had all these infections from, because, you know, when you're, if your gut bursts, what happens is the stuff leaks out. And, and basically, 
our viscera are it's like a spa a high-end spa for bacteria you know they're like whoa we're really happy here it's like moist and warm and let's just grow like crazy so i was like completely you know infected so i had to be in the hospital for another two months on IV antibiotics. And also they were weaning me off of the prednisone because prednisone impedes tissue repair. And first of all, that's a super bad combo anyway. The weaning off of the prednisone is really bad. But while I was in the hospital, obviously on a lot of drugs, so I'm not, I somehow spontaneously started going into these trances, kind of listened to music. And I could go into this like place that wasn't my hospital room that was like filled with light and I could somehow gather the light and then just sort of pack it around like all of the places in my, my gut where they had, you know, like where my small bowel had been removed and the liver had been, you know, just, and I just would thought of it as like pain management. Like I was just buffering. And then once I did that, I could just fall into this like very peaceful, calm place, which I, you know, if you've ever spent a long time in the hospital, that is not what a hospital is like. So, and at first it freaked everybody out because they would come to the room and try to talk to me. And I would be like, as I like to say, dead to the world. They didn't like that. But then they figured out if they turned off my music, I would come out of it. And I didn't think anything about it really, apart from that it was pain management because my mother was a communist. My father was a physical chemist. They were both dogmatic atheists. In my family, matter was all that mattered. So I wasn't having a spiritual experience. I was just, I don't even know what was going on. But then, yeah, when I finally left the hospital, I had an exit interview with my surgeon who, super handsome. So I'm having the exit interview and he says these things to me that are like seared into my brain. So the first thing he says is that, you know, he says, you were the sickest person I've operated on in five years who's still alive. Okay, first of all, that really just knocked me because, of course, you know, I was 23. I, you know, I knew that I'd been sick and whatever, but, you know, I didn't really want to think, okay, I was at death's door, you know, like yeah. that was not part of my. But then the second thing he said was even more shocking. And he said, you're the sickest person I've operated on in five years who's still alive. And I have no idea how you got better so quickly. And that, I was like, okay, two things. That was the first time I heard a doctor say, I don't know. Oh, yeah. And second of all, I was like, well, yeah, how did I get better? And then I was like, hmm. And that really, that was what opened a door to me. You know, it's just like something happened. I wasn't even thinking about it as healing at that point. It was just like something happened that was more than medicine knew. Because, you know, I've since 13, I mean, I was 23. Since 13, I had been like doctored up the wazoo, literally. And you know, so their way of thinking and knowing, I mean, that was my only framework for understanding what was happening to me. And I did know something else was happening. At a certain point, like when I was 15 or 16, I begged my father. I said, please, I want to go to therapy. Can I go to therapy? And my father, in his like really snarky way, said, you've seen too many Woody Allen movies. Oh my and God. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. So <laughs> the positive thing of almost dying was then they paid for me to go to therapy. Okay. So, yeah. And then I started, and I've been in therapy ever since. So, I mean, that's been a long therapy, but well worth it. 
Yeah, no, and it was just sort of like something opened then. And so then I started having all these other experiences. So what happened then was when I got out of the hospital, because I was on prednisone for so long, and then with, if they take you off it, so prednisone by itself can cause, you know, all kinds of psychological side effects. But if they take it, you off it too quickly, it can cause psychotic breaks or it can cause dissociation. So I wasn't psychotic, but I was dissociated. I was very dissociated. But they didn't bother to mention it to me. They didn't say anything. And at a certain point, I was talking to like one of my roommates. And I was like, just trying to explain like how like I felt, which was just like completely detached from the world. I mean, which makes sense. I just gone through all this trauma and everything. She was like freaked out. And she's like, you need to go to a therapist. I was like, okay. So what therapist am I going to go to? One of my other roommates was seeing this woman. So one of my other roommates was discovering her bisexuality, right? And so she went to this therapist, Joanne Luland, who's wonderful, who at the time was known as the lesbian sex therapist. She was famous for coining the phrase lesbian bed death. But the thing that she did for me that was incredible was I walked in, I started telling her what was going on. After five minutes, she just puts up her hand and she says, stop. And she's like, you're having a prednisone withdrawal. She says, my sister has Crohn's disease. She had the same thing happen to her. And you need to go see this other doctor who she's been seeing who is amazing. And that changed my life because she sent me to this person, Rachel Remen. Rachel Remen is a world famous healer. She's a physician. She was a pediatric endocrinologist at Stanford Hospital. And she herself had Crohn's disease. And she's 20 years older than me. So my treatments compared to what goes on now were like rudimentary, but her treatments compared to mine were even more rudimentary. And she had many surgeries and many So at a certain point, well, basically when they offered her the position of being the head of pediatrics at Stanford University Hospital, she quit and she stopped practicing clinical medicine. She started a practice for people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses and as what she called recovering doctors. And it was amazing. It was on a houseboat in Sausalito that used to be owned by Alan Watts. And she did this amazing kind of practice called psychosynthesis, which involved a lot of guided imagery and In my very first session with her, she did these amazing things. The first thing I saw, again, I'm telling her, like, I'm in there, I'm saying, how did I get here and what's going on? And now I'm saying, you know, I think I'm having a drug withdrawal, which she knew, of course. And she goes again, stop. And I'm like, okay. And then she picks up the phone. And because I don't know how she did this, but I guess because she was a Stanford doctor, she got through the switchboard to my gastroenterologist and started, I mean, she she didn't yell. She has a very quiet, lovely voice, but, you know, she's a very, you know, Ivy League, Cornell University, you know, Sloan Kettering, Stanford, you know, and she's just like, I mean, she is telling him off and she is like, I cannot believe that you allowed this young man to be taken off of prednisone. You have seen him since he has been dismissed from the hospital, and you haven't inquired into 
his mental health because nobody mentioned anything to me. I mean, it was like incredible. And basically she just said to my doctor, you have not been taking care of this person. You know, she's not been taking care of me appropriately. And I was just like, whoa. Okay. First of all, that was the first time like in a doctor to doctor confrontation, somebody like stood up for me and basically was like, the way you have been treated is not in a a caring way. Right. I mean, that, that was the beginning of the session. Then it went on to, I'm telling her about the out of body and then the, you know, the trances and whatever. And, and she explains to me, medicine has this scientific bias and there's a lot of knowledge that bioscientific medicine has and it can treat a lot of things but it is not the be all and end all she was like we are always more than we know there is more to us than can be reduced to some you know kinds of molecular cellular processes so we're more than matter you know there is stuff that you know that our minds can do that we have no way of putting down in some kind of physical, concrete way. I was going to bring up her because you actually mentioned several people that were kind of your teachers in the aftermath of all of this. And and you've kind of taken all of that information from these these various people, her, Robert Asagioli, Emily Conrad, and Susan Harper. And they all kind of have what I think of as what you've distilled down into kind of what you do with your own counseling program now. And so you counsel people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses to kind of think about their illnesses and address healing them from what I would say is kind of a different lens than just the traditional medical model that we were just discussing. And we'd love to hear kind of, if you could explain to us some of those methods that you learned from them of psychagogy, which is a new word that I, that I learned, and kind of the ideas of transformative conversation and, and kind of how all those work and help your, your clients. Absolutely. So yeah, so I have, I have a practice that I've developed called Healing Council. So it's healingcouncil.com if you want to look it up. And as you say, it's basically a, a synthesis of, of the things that I have learned over the course of the last 40 years in my own healing journey. I mean, the book that I wrote on learning to heal or what medicine doesn't know really is structured by my learning curve. And that's why, and the reason I call it on learning to heal is that we always have to learn to heal. Healing never takes the same form twice. So healing and learning for me are always about how can we enhance the quality of our life in the conditions in which we're living? That no matter... I mean, some of us have way more resources than others. You know, some of us have much more severe challenges than others. But wherever we are, you know, just as a belief, as a precept, I hold that we are always more than we know, that something else is possible. And what I try to do in my practice is to hold that for people, even when they're in places that they can't imagine that for themselves. And there's a lot of different techniques that you can want or I can use, you know, in order to, to support that possibility. And so the people that you mentioned, Essa Jolie, was the founder of a, a school of psychotherapy called Psychosynthesis. He was a uh, Jewish-Italian doctor who was trained as a psychoanalyst in the beginning of the 20th century. He had a correspondence with Freud. He felt that 
you know, there was a problem with Freud. Freud was a traditional doctor. Oh, well, I wouldn't say traditional. Freud was a modern doctor. Freud was trained as a neurologist and, and did believe in this biochemical reductionism stuff. And Asajoli had a kind of spiritual background. He was Jewish, but his mother was a theosophist. And he felt like there were other things that were going on. And so the practice, I mean, it's, it's famous for using, you know, a technique called guided imagery that many other practices use. But primarily the, the, what I would say, like the main kernel of that practice is that as a counselor, I hold that you, when you come to me, that you already know, part of you already knows that there's something more that you can be, that there's, otherwise you would not be coming, right? You would just have resigned yourself to like wallowing in, you know, whatever condition you are. So if you've come seeking help, that that indicates that the part of you that knows about healing is activated. And what I try to do is to help you to identify that and to develop strategies for encouraging that, for amplifying that, for acknowledging your desire, validating the sense that this is valuable right? That, you know, our culture is so biased towards productivity and profit. And, and really, when you're sick, so many people feel this like pressure, like, which is economic pressure, like, I have to get better, I have to get back to work, I have to make money, you know, but also just the even apart from like, your own sustenance, like, you know, I have to pay my rent, I have to do, there is a kind of cultural bias that that sickness is in itself bad, right? I mean, the, it's like funny, I like etymologies, I like you know, the way that we're, where words come from. The word value, valere, comes from Latin. It means to be strong, to be healthy, to have force. And so like our sense of value is like being healthy is valuable. So if you're not healthy, you're not valuable, right? You know, it's like this weird. And uh, so, you know, oftentimes when people are challenged psychologically, physically, one of the first steps towards like encouraging their healing is just to say the place that you are is important. It might be that you're actually capable you, that you're in this circumstance and you can learn something new. You can learn to be otherwise. In fact, that might be what's needed. You know, in fact, that might be something that whatever the symptoms that you're manifesting are right now are trying to tell you. We don't always know everything about our lives. That's part of the, you're always more than you know, that we do things for unknown reasons. You know, like I say to my students all the time when I try to explain the unconscious, you know, I'm like, you know, when you do those things and then you say to yourself, well, why did I just do that? Or even better, why did I just do that again? You know, like, you know, it's like, because we don't know everything about ourselves. And so sometimes illness presents us with ways of knowing what's unconscious in our lives. And that if we don't dismiss it as being not valuable, something we have to get over, and that's what the, the fantasy of cure, we have this fantasy of being cured. Curing, okay, curing is a fantasy. There is no such thing as cure, right? But the fantasy of cure is I can return to the state that I was in before I began to manifest symptoms. So it's basically like, I'm, it's like willed amnesia. Like, I'm just going to blip out everything that just happened to me and I want to return to it before 
you know, before anything happened. And I'm like, but why would you want to do that? I mean, that's your life. So I said, Julie, that, you know, is the person who like, from whom, you know, I, I did a training in psychosynthesis. And from that kind of work really helped me to appreciate that life is a process. We're always in this, these moments of transformation. We can always become more than we are at any moment, up to and including, you know, when we die. Like one of my other teachers says this great thing that I always like to share with people, which is, she says, look, death is going to come for us all at some point. When it comes for you, make sure you're as alive as you possibly can be. I'm like, okay, I am down with that program. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you're really passionate about shifting the perspective when they come to you. Absolutely. That's like kind of, and so you, one of your philosophies is that sort of self-care actually requires collaboration with others. And so can you sort of expand on this, on that concept and why is that so important? Absolutely. I believe that in our culture, we have a real misapprehension of what it means to be a living being. So we have this idea about ourselves that we call being an individual. And being an individual seems to require that our primary relationships are to ourselves, and only secondarily are we connected to other people in the United States, and but also in Western cultures, and our economic system insists this on this particular way. Like now we all have to be entrepreneurs of ourselves, right? We're all our own brand. Well, that's not what it means to be a living organism. And if you just think about when you're born, you don't have a self, actually. You are entirely dependent and entangled with those who can support you in going on living, who can feed you, who can keep you warm, who can wipe your ass, right? We are born, the human beings are are an interesting species. We're born what's called specifically prematurely. We have to continue gestating outside of our mother's wombs because if our heads got any bigger, we would not be able to pass through the birth canal. So we are still neurologically, muscularly developing in especially in the first years of our lives in this way where we begin to develop a self in relation to others. Self always exists only in relation to others. There is no self separated from others. And a very simple way of understanding that is the way that we most commonly represent ourselves is by saying, I, I do this, I do that. That's an indication of our selfness. Well, again, babies aren't born saying I, right? They don't say anything. And if you've ever seen children learn language, most children learn to refer to themselves in the third person before they refer to themselves in the first person, like Eddie wants blah, blah, because that's how they hear their parents talking to them, right? When it is a huge developmental milestone, when children begin to use the pronoun I to refer to themselves to speak in language. But the paradox of that is the you precedes the I. And not only that, the language that we speak comes to us from those people, right? The language exists outside of us, exists before us, it will continue after us. So we have in our culture, I think, a really unfortunate misapprehension 
of what it means to be a living being, what it means to be a person. And it's tied up with like when I was saying immunology is the considered to be the science of self, not self-discrimination. Immunology imports this philosophical, political, economic assumption about how living beings are into its understanding. And that's part of the problem. And so when I say, yes, self-care, self-care always entails being in relationship to others. And not only that, but valuing or appreciating the otherness of the self, right? That, you know, those aspects, when we say we are always more than we know, the more than the excess part, that's the other, right? That's the other in us that we don't know about. But that other can have, has all kinds of resources, all kinds of potentialities that we don't necessarily have the capacity to access primarily because we, I like the way I like to tell people, it's like we have blink blinders on. We're looking like this and basically we're looking through blinders and what are we doing? We're looking in the mirror, right? We're looking at ourselves and we define ourselves in terms of what we see in the mirror. And that's also like this thing I always tell my students. Okay, what I always try to say to them, what do you see when you look in the mirror? And they finally realize, oh, I'm trying to see myself how other people see me. That part. And so what does that tell you? That yourself is predicated on how you imagine somebody else is seeing you. And not only that, I mean, it's so weird because you think, okay, but the mirror, I'm here and the mirror's over there. I'm three-dimensional at least. The mirror's two-dimensional. I have no frame. I'm in a whole world. The mirror has, you know, these boundaries. The mirror presents a completely false image of yourself. It gives you this sense that you're more contained and that you're well bounded, right? And that you're flat. I mean, <laughs> True. You know, and not to mention that you're left to right. You know, <laughs> as I like, say in your reverse. <laughs> you're like turned around, you you know, and then you're like, okay, I'm turned around, I'm flat, I'm two-dimensional, and I'm tr- and I'm trying to figure out how I look to other people. What is yourself? One of the things I try to do, yes, in terms of helping people understand self-care, because in our in our culture, you know, right now, self-care is a, a, you know, very big industry. And I mean, not to call out Gwyneth Paltrow or Oprah, but the thing is, all of the techniques and technologies, there's nothing wrong with any of these resources. They can all do amazing things, right? But when they are captured in this particular kind of for-profit, commercial, commodity culture, you know, what they end up doing is reinforcing, in my mind, the rudimentary problem, which is we really have to realize from a very core place that we are not separate from others, that the other is part of ourself. And that's true in relation to our localities. But it's also true right now, like, that's what I think global warming is telling us, is like, we have to realize that all of the things that we do we are implicated in something much larger than we are and something that is much larger than we are is also implicated in us. If we can begin to expand our perspective to allow ourselves to understand that there are many more possibilities than we are currently imagining and that it might be really healing, you know, for us personally, but also collectively. I mean, that's why I like, you know, I'm here proselytizing about healing, because I don't think healing is just a matter of, you know, one person at a time. I think healing can occur 
at all levels of existence. I mean, it does occur. It's a biological necessity. Single-celled organisms have the capacity to regenerate. Otherwise, they'd be dead. But I also think that that's collectively true. And I really hope it's planetarily true. (laughs) That, That, I mean, and we do have indications. Like I think about the way that you're probably, you may not be old enough to know this, but when there was the hole in the ozone layer because of, you know, the Freon and whatever the, the, forget what those chemicals are called. And then they were actually banned. And guess what? The hole started to close. I'm like, okay, seems like, you know, it's possible that healing is not just something that happens in individual organisms, that actually there is a kind of biospheric capacity to regenerate, recondition, revivify in different kinds of ways. So, you know, basically, yeah, Todd, what you were saying, what I try to do is to reframe, to help people to say, there's more, there's always more that we can be. We've been doing the show now a little over a year and reframing is like, wouldn't you say, Laura, is like kind of a big thing with us in any part of healing. If you just reframe or change your perspective about one thing, it can sort of snowball into good, good, positive things. Absolutely. I think a big kind of thing to piggyback off what you were saying as far as global warming. I mean, I think a major thing that you've written about, and I'm fascinated by always, which is the pandemic, of how really we still are, we have no idea, I think, how much that really kind of affected everybody as a whole. And it really showed us how much we are all interconnected, how, you know, that that's how a pandemic or an endemic or anything happens is is the basically something bouncing from person to person to person because of their relationships. Can you kind of explain to us and our listeners what toxic individualism kind of is and whether such individualism affected the amount of death that we kind of saw during the pandemic. Absolutely. So toxic individualism is basically what I've been describing, this fantasy that we are separate from one another rather than that we are connected. And and to me, I mean, I feel one of the unrealized possibilities of the pandemic, I think that you were alluding to this, Laura, that I had hoped was that people would understand that this pandemic, any pandemic, any infectious disease, as a matter of fact, reveals to us that biologically speaking, individualism is counterfactual, right? That we are all connected to each other all the time. And the example that I like to use is the beginning of the pandemic when we were told, don't touch each other, right? And then suddenly you had to be aware of, oh my God, I touch people all the time, but now I have to stop myself, but we're always touching. And in fact, the word contagion means etymologically touching together, right? And viral epidemics are really amazing uh, in that way because viruses are these weird paradoxical particles. They're neither animate nor inanimate. They can't travel by themselves. They don't grow by themselves. They, they are like links between things. And so the pandemic, you know, to me seemed like a moment at which I hoped 
that people might be able to take stock of the way that we are all implicated in one another. And, you know, and there were ways that at the beginning, especially in terms of the incredible responses, the medical responses that people in hospitals and doctor's offices were able to manifest despite the fact that they themselves would be at risk, there wasn't enough personal protective, you know, equipment. You know, it shows that people care. It was like we were out there, you know, clapping and tooting and whatever at, you know, 7 p.m. to like to acknowledge that. But somehow it, it really didn't get taken on. And at the same time in the United States and then subsequently around the world, but it really did start here. There were all of the people who initially were like, I'm not wearing a mask. It's impinging on my freedom. And then subsequently, you know, people who were like, I'm not going to get vaccinated. It's impinging on my freedom. The idea that your freedom allows you to put other people at risk seems to me a really problematic understanding of what freedom entails. And it's really, there's in political philosophy, you build talk about freedom oftentimes in two ways, freedom from, like freedom from oppression, or freedom to, the freedom to do something. This was really a kind of epidemic of people who were trying to be free from having to conform to forms of conduct that somehow, I mean, I, I just didn't get it, honestly. I'm like, wear the fucking mask. I mean, like, <laughs> like, like, I'm like, you know, like, I'm like, I mean, I do get it. I'm like, but I'm like, okay, look, I have glasses. I wear the mask. My glasses steam up. It's really annoying, whatever. I mean, but the thing was that the mask took on a symbolic value. And I think it was precisely at the point at which people did at some unconscious level know that that individualism was biologically counterfactual. Like their way of understanding themselves was so challenged by the biological facts on the ground that there was a reassertion of what they wanted to believe. Like there's a desire to believe. And something as simple as wearing a mask took on this excess value. Because really, if you just think of like the actual discomfort or in wearing a mask, it's really minimal. It's really minimal, but it took on so much symbolic value. And whenever there's something like that, when there's like an excess of meaning that's attached to some small, you know, kind of behavior, I'm always like, okay, what is that excess? You know, okay, yes, it's annoying. Yes, totally with you. But what is that excess of affect? And to my mind, the excess of affect was really in defense of the desire that individualism be true in the face of a biological pandemic that was actually demonstrating that it's a fiction, right? That it's a fantasy. And I think that that tension really manifests. So that's why I called it toxic individualism, because it was like the desire for individualism to be true led people to manifest forms of behavior that were deleterious, not just to themselves, though to themselves, but to others, right? Yeah. Because they did not want to take in that we are always connected to one another. We're all in this together. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like. Did you ever get pushback on that idea about toxic individual, your students or anyone? Has anyone ever disagreed no. with you? Or I don't think, I don't, no, how I mean, could you? <laughs> but I mean, how well, could you disagree with that? Like, 
we are all one and the same. I mean, you could disagree with the conclusion, but even people who are affirming that they are individuals would say, yes, that's what I was doing. I was affirming I was, I am an individual. You know, I, Yeah, I mean, well, I think so it was almost... even disagree. It got kind of insane, though, the point of people being like trying to debunk the effectiveness of masks, trying to like literally justify their actions as not because you they knew in, in their heart of hearts, it was a community thing and that it was going to affect other people. So then instead of just doing it, just wearing the effing mask, they're like, well, no, here's why we shouldn't, because really it doesn't do anything and it really isn't working. And it, in fact, it's, it's worse for us. Like it's it, the amount, the links that people went to, to try to kind of make this cognitive dissonance of, no, exactly. it didn't made no sense, but that just didn't want to be seen as the people that were like harming their fellow neighbor. They just wanted everybody to agree with them that they shouldn't have to wear it because that was somebody telling them what to do. And it's just nonsense. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, at one level, it's nonsense. And at another level, it is they are affirming a belief that is a dominant belief in the United States. Like, I mean, this is another thing that I always, you know, try to explain to people. We have this fantasy of the notion of independence. We have a declaration of independence. That's the beginning of our country. We are the independent people, you know. But you know what? Independence actually depends on dependence. Like, there's no word independence without the word dependence. That is literally a form of dependence, right? So, I mean, insofar as people are committed to this fantasy, which is a national fantasy and and has lots of political implications, you know, in terms of like our social well, like why don't we have universal health care? Like why like all of these things, you know, that are to me like insane stem from this. I mean, I do think that this notion of individualism as an economic, political, psychological, spiritual form of living is toxic. I do think it is toxic. It is toxic for us in our particularity. It's toxic for us in our collectivity, in our communities. It's toxic for us in our nations. You know, now with all the stuff around immigration, you know, it's like the people who just were like burned to death on the Texas border, you know, because they weren't allowed. All the people who like die in the Mediterranean, all of these things. And then, you know, and global warming and all the idea that we're individuals, it was a very, very important development in political history in the 17th century. Well, Ed, I want to shift gears just real quick here. Can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming book, which is called On Learning to Heal? Sure. So it's actually out. Oh, it's out. Just two months. On Learning to Heal or What Medicine Doesn't Know. So it has many of the themes that we've been speaking about here. And really what that is about is unlearning what it meant to be an individual, unlearning the way in which medicine, especially in trying to explain what autoimmunity was, you know, I'm eating myself alive. See, that's a self thing. It's like you're turning back on yourself, right? Beginning to understand, oh, wait, if I can begin to expand my notion of who I am to include the ways that I am with others, that I will have many more resources that will allow me to live in more life-affirming ways. And it was only after I had this huge crisis and then somehow managed 
to be the person that my surgeon said, you're the sickest person I've operated on five years. who's still alive. And I know you get better. You know, you got better so quickly. I mean, which was nothing intentional. I had no idea. <laughs> that was not me doing that. Right. That's the thing. That was not me. There was nothing in my experience. And then I had to go, Oh, okay. There's more to me than I know. Wow. That's really a kind of rock in my world there. So the book is trying to explain why do these ideas rock our world? Like why, why don't we know these things? I just read yesterday in the wake of COVID the expected life, uh, life expectancy in the United States is at the level of North Korea and Cuba. I mean, <laughs> mm, that's not great. I'm like, I'm like, okay. And we spend bazillions more than North Korea and Cuba. So, and every other industrialized nation we are so far down in the ranks of and like i just went to a conference about childbirth reproductive it was on reproductive justice we have the highest maternal mortality rates in the industrialized world we have the highest infant mortality rates i mean it's insane right i mean non-industrialized countries do better than we do so, you know, I don't think it's like a conspiracy, like a few people, but it is a coalescence of sets of ways of understanding that no longer serve us, no longer serve the preponderance of people. It would be nice if we could transform those possibilities before we had another humongous crisis. Yeah, <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> but. Some people seem to only be able to change when there's a crisis. I mean, you know, I'm... And even then, sometimes I don't. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, I think we could literally talk about this forever because all of this is fascinating and and all the work that you've done is, is amazing. And I really wish I could be one of your students at Rutgers, but... You know, maybe I'll come and audit a class sometime. Yeah, we've had such a good time with you. And we can't say enough good things about all of the papers that you've written, but including the book that just came out on learning to heal. So everybody go get a copy now. But before we let you go and give you this beautiful afternoon back so you can ride your bicycle, we do have a tradition on the show, which is called the question of the day. Because sometimes oh. we talk about like kind of this intense stuff. So we like to, you know, Keep it bright and light at the end, you know? So today's question for you, Ed, is would you take the opportunity, if you had it, to be immortal? Oh, no. (laughs) Okay, that was quick. (laughs) Not even missing a beat. (laughs) No. (laughs) Why? But I would take the chance to be reincarnated. So Come back as another human? Well, actually, what everybody, all of my friends say, and I probably say, this is like one of those, you know, time paradoxes, but all my friends say they want to be reincarnated as one of my cats. And I say, I want to be reincarnated as one of my cats too. But then I would have to be reincarnated as me in order to take care of my cat. And Mm. then that would be like, uh, you know, like one of those, like, I don't know. Like a universe <laughs> loop that we just can't overcome the the catch twenty two of it. You don't mind a, you just, you don't mind a, a different life, just not this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
it could be another. Yeah. I mean, no, no, I have to say, no, I'm with, you know, so I don't know if you know about Nietzsche, but Nietzsche has this thing called the eternal return. And basically his thing is like, you have to affirm that this moment, each time that it, re- it returns eternally, that you affirm this is the moment that you would choose. And I'm like, I feel very lucky and very blessed. I've had many difficult, many difficult things in my life. Even the, the most difficult things have been moments at which I have been able to become more of myself, more expansive, more related to others. And so, no, I don't need to be someone else. I could come back and do this again. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Just relive this. <laughs> I like that idea. I, I or I could be one of my cats. Or one of your cats. <laughs> Somebody else would come back as you, and then you would come back yeah, as one of your cats. But I don't know if anybody could do it as good as I me. know. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. the problem. That's, that's now the, we're that's back the issue. to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on the program today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, it was wonderful. And we just hope you have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll have to have you back. Oh, that would be lovely. Thank you. Well, Todd, what'd you think? I thought it was fascinating. I thought he brings a fresh perspective and I was trying to, he's, he's obviously exceptionally bright and he holds a PhD and he's an incredible teacher and healer and all of those kinds of things. But what he's been through, that was the part that where he, how they told him that what was happening to his body was almost like it was his fault. Your body's turning on you. Yeah. I didn't appreciate the way those doctors I mean, spoke yeah, to him. That, it, all around seemed like really poor use of words as far as how to explain to a 13-year-old what's going on. But I also think it was just a crazy concept for somebody that young to even understand and then to go through, you know, basically be told so young that you have something that's quote unquote, incurable, and that there really isn't anything you can do, then to be put on steroids, that you have no idea how that's affecting you. And nobody knew how it was affecting them. Prednisone is like intense. And to do that for 10 years, and then to have the psychological effects that it had, I mean, while you're going through puberty, I just can't even imagine that that was in any way comfortable. And then then when he was in the hospital, and they thought that he had AIDS, And it's like, no, I just have Crohn's disease and I'm having. Like, yeah. And they're like, well, but you know, you're, you clearly are gay and you've got, you know, that's how the things are happening, happening here. Right and now, it's exactly. like, well, look, I've literally, this is not, it's not the beat right now. I am, um, I don't really want anything going on down there. So it's it just all around like what he's been through was like a very, I mean, it's traumatic in and of itself. Exactly. But he seems to have, you know, like a lot of people that come on here, see the crazy beauty in that and made him who he is today. Just like he said with his answer of, you know, he would basically reincarnate to be himself, preferably one of his cats, but (laughs) to be himself because, you know, he was, he learned everything that he did by going through all of that. What was your take on him talking about toxic individualism? I really, that was kind of why I really wanted to ask about it. It really resonated with me because that's what I felt like during the pandemic, that that was a huge issue, that it was just a lot of people really couldn't see the forest for the trees. They all kind of panicked and it became all about them and how this is affecting them. And understandably, I mean, you are with yourself 24-7. So individualism is not, like as he pointed out, it's not an insane concept. Like you, you are only 
you. You only have yourself to for the rest of your life. But the fact that you couldn't see past that, people couldn't see past that, that they kind of had this, like, remember when the toilet paper all just disappeared? And then people started selling toilet paper for like, you know, 50 times the price or whatever. And that guy got in trouble on Amazon. It was just like, dude, there is a deadly virus going around. And far as I knew at that point, diarrhea was not like a major symptom. It wasn't like we were at the toilet paper was the number one thing. You'd think it'd be like cold medicine. It it was like this panic that, and you saw certain people. I mean, I personally saw certain people in my life that also me first or my family first over the collective when it was like, no, no, we all need each other. It almost, it pissed me off too that people were like, or the people that said it wasn't real or oh, that, that, you know, that it wasn't real. And then, and then it's like, okay, well then once you get it, why do you want us to help you through this when you're literally screaming and like screaming and spreading germs everywhere without your mask on? And then you want to be able to have the help of medical professionals that you have literally been saying are, are wrong and, and making this all up. It was, it was pretty infuriating to me personally, you know, having my mom being a doctor and a lot of my friends being doctors as well. And so I don't know, that was, that was a very interesting topic. Yes. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't always come a little bit of skepticism, but we have the entire world telling you this is going on. Then you probably should just take, take a minute, maybe think it might be, and also trust in like your fellow man. It would be a lot easier to trust in fellow men if they were not acting a fool like that as well. Well, that'll be the day yeah, exactly. when I die. <laughs> <laughs> People, we love them. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. Uh, Sandy Duncan once said, <laughs> "People, so overrated." <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, after doing over a year of this podcast, it's like learning about, I don't know, there's everybody focus on self-care, focus on, I don't know. I just really, I enjoyed his take on a lot of things really, but the fact that he said that self-care actually requires collaboration, mm-hmm. which could mean with a therapist, a friend, yeah. a healer, and him reframing people's perspectives when they come to him for healing was also pretty powerful to me. Yeah. I think it's great. And hope to have him back on the program because we didn't even talk about the fact that he has a PhD and he's a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Rutgers yes. University. So we didn't even get to any of that. So we'll probably have to have him back on the program. To talk yeah, about he all was talking that. about the class he's teaching now, which oh, I can't remember something about the theory of queer or something about yeah. queer theory or something. It was very yeah. interesting. He's definitely... Cool. Yeah. Cool, guy. cool guy. And he's quirky. got I, the, the quirky healer. That should be his yes, life. Yes. A quirky healer. Yeah. So, Ed, if you hear this, that's your, <laughs> you should get his take, logo. Take the name, Ed. Yeah. We give it to you. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a good talk. I really enjoyed it. So, I guess for you, question of the day, mm-hmm. if you had the opportunity to be immortal, would, would you take it? I've asked myself this question so many times because you, if you think about that, you would have to watch everyone around you pass Die. away. You would know that there's no end in sight. So either that could be a really positive thing, but knowing that that everyone that you come in contact with, but I guess it's no different than now. We have relationships now that we know at some point someone's going to pass. Yeah, but it's like you don't, you just keep going while everybody else Exactly. Leaves. So I guess the answer is, 
I don't think so. Yeah, I don't I think, think so either. I, I would like maybe a little longer time mm-hmm. on this planet. I think the longest is like 100 years. Yeah. Let me a little longer. But, you know, I would like a little bit more time with this life. But honestly, that's why you, you should, you know, Jonathan Larson said it best. No day but today. You got to live every day as if it were your last and yeah. get out there and do what you want to do and heal. And so you can enjoy everyone and everything around you. I agree. I think that that's, and you know, I asked my daughter this question before we got on here and she just, she was the same as Ed. She just was like, no, I wouldn't. And I was like, well, that was quite fast. And she said, so, well, why not? She said, well, because, you know, I would really like to go to heaven one day. You know, I really want to go somewhere else. She's seven. She's a wise seven. But I, you know, thought that was a great answer. And also I was like, yeah, and then you miss everybody else that that left. And she's like, I know, right? So I agree. I wish it was almost like instead of I know there's no way to necessarily have more time unless there's some kind of crazy. uh, But I also feel like once I get to a certain age, I don't know if I even really, you know, like I I said, is the juice worth the squeeze at that point? You know, if you can't really move or, or you're like, you know, everything hurts. And I'm already uh, yeah, got enough quality of, that. of life. You exactly. know, is my quality of life going to be great the whole time? Yeah. Will I stay this age? Yes. <laughs> and even then, can I go back to a different exactly. age? But no, I think ultimately I wish more than anything to have the ability to appreciate now yeah. more than wanting the more time. Because what am I going to do with that? Just more of the same, you know? Mm-hmm. So we're on the same page. Well, always great to see you. Always and in person. This is crazy that we've got to do this today in person. It's I know. kind of fun. It is really fun. I like it. More of Two. this, please. Same. All right. Well, till next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.